Let me read Acts chapter 4, verses uh, verses 1 through 22, the first part of that chapter. Page 1080 in your pew Bible. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were, pe- were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and asked how he was healed, well, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. A couple weeks ago, I was at a swim meet with my boys, and I struck up a conversation with another one of the swim dads. We were timing in one of the lanes together, and really friendly guy, we're chatting about everything, and eventually, the question in the conversation was asked, the question I love to answer, so, what do you do for a living? (laughs) And so I'm like, well, let me pull the pin out of the hand grenade here, I'm a pastor, you know, (laughs) And I love, I love that moment in the conversation because at that point, the conversation either becomes very interesting or it becomes very quiet. And this was one of the times it became interesting. He, he kind of thought, oh, oh, and, and he began just unloading his spiritual journey on me and how he had been raised in a church, but because of a series of things, became very disaffected with the church. And, and so he and his family didn't go anywhere now, and they, they didn't have that part figured out, and yet he wasn't an atheist. He wasn't a skeptic because he'd had some things happen in his life that were supernatural that he couldn't quite explain. And, and so, he, you know, I said, you're not an atheist. And he's like, no, I, I just don't know how to make sense of this. So he said, well, that, that's my story. That's where I'm at. And so I asked him a few more questions. And then I said, well, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you where I'm at. You told me yours, I'll tell you mine. 
So I got to tell them about Jesus and how Jesus had, you know, forgiven me my sins, how I'd come to follow Christ, and I told them about all of you. I was like, oh, my church, is it all these people who love Jesus and their lives are changed. And I told them about the, the growth group Bible study I'm in and the men who are in that group and their lives are being changed. And he was like, wow, that's just really interesting to me. And, 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 and you know, he said, I hear about all these athletes on TV who, who come to Christ and their lives are changed. You know, it's, just, it's interesting. I've never heard this. And I, and I thought, wow, this is so cool. I'm engaging with the gospel. I'm building bridges, Right? Being a little missionary here in the South Shore, it was really exciting. And then things went south. <laughs> he said, but you know, one issue I have is, is you know, with Christians and, and religion is all these religions think they're the only true religion. He goes, why, why do they think that? He goes, that really bothers me. He goes, you know, isn't the purpose of religion to just help us feel better about ourselves and be better people? And so why are they always fighting over who's the best one at doing that? Why can't they just get along and help us all, you know, feel better about ourselves? And then another person came up, and they replaced him as a timer, and I didn't get to answer. And I was like, ah, so I'm watching for him <laughs> at future meets. I have not forgotten his name or face. You know, that objection is a common objection. In fact, I think it's one that a lot of people have today. But when you think about the, the objections people have to faith in our culture, that's got to be one of the big ones at the top of the list, uh, especially in our relativistic postmodern culture where people don't believe there is such a thing as absolute truth, where people believe that all truth is kind of relative. You know, there's my truth and your truth, and what works for you doesn't work for me, and that's okay. Um, in, in fact, uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, uh, has written a lot, just a really thoughtful man of the faith, and, and he, has, uh, he thinks this is one of his, what he calls, defeater beliefs. Have you heard of this concept of a defeater belief? It's the idea that in any culture, there's a set of presuppositions that people believe just about reality, and that, that in any culture, there will be certain things that people believe that, by definition, contradict the gospel, so, so that when you bring the gospel to bear to any culture, there's going to be some things about the culture some things about the gospel is that culture just says, no, that can't be right. We don't believe that because there's presuppositions. And that's one of ours, he would argue, is this idea that nobody has the exclusive claim to truth. There isn't just one way. I mean, you know, we're in this consumeristic culture. There isn't just one anything. There isn't just one TV channel. There isn't just one clothing store. There isn't just one restaurant. I mean, we're, we're surrounded by choice. And so, so this just doesn't make sense to people today to say Jesus is the way of salvation. But it doesn't just kind of bother people today. I think some people would say it's, it's a downright dangerous idea. People would say, let me look, look, isn't this the problem with religion? People think they have an idea, they think it's right, and then they think God's behind them, and they become full of themselves, and then they start killing each other. You know, pe- religious people are the problem. They, they think that God is on their side, and therefore that justifies all kinds of atrocious behavior toward one another because it's all justified in the name of God. That's the problem, people would argue today. So this is a very strange idea. And yet here we, we have this text, this bold text, verse 12 of chapter 4, per- perhaps one of the most clear statements in the New Testament about the exclusivity of Jesus as Savior. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So this presents a problem. You know, this is our theme of the missions conference this year. You know, building bridges, right? Uh, and, And so here we are building a bridge, but the bridge is out. 
And people go, what? What? That's not a bridge. That's a wall. Um, we're, we're talking about engaging people with the gospel. And yet this is a, a phrase that even you start mentioning the name of Jesus and people disengage, like my friend at the swim meet. And even this thought about missionaries, like it's missions week. We're like, yay, missions. But what's missions? It's sending people to another culture where they don't know Jesus and telling them about Jesus. Like how ethnocentric of us, how jingoistic of us, how imperialistic of us, how colonialistic of us to go and tell other people that they need to believe in Jesus. So this is a really challenging thing. It's kind of um, the elephant in the room for missions today, one of the big elephants in the room that we have to deal with. And so what do, what do we do with this? How do we handle this as Christians? Is this even feasible in the 21st century to keep proclaiming the gospel? Or, or does uh, the, the project of evangelism and missions have to be radically rethought? Well, let's look at this verse, and before we get to the verse, we need to pick up the whole story because this verse occurs in a context, occurs in a story, and it sets the stage, and it helps us understand why Peter would say this. So, so let's look back at the story here, and, and what's, what had happened prior to this? Even if you weren't here two Sundays ago, you probably just picked it up from the reading. There had been a miracle, that's what happened. The, the, the uh, Jews were there in the temple as they went every day in Jerusalem, it was the afternoon prayer time, three in the afternoon, and Peter and John, two of the apostles, the uh, disciples of Jesus, they see a, a man who can't walk. He hasn't been w- able to walk his whole life. He was lame from birth, and they, they look at him, and, and they heal him in the name of Jesus. You can see it back in chapter 3, if you want, chapter 3, verse 6, a great line. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong, and he jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. That miracle then drew a mob. The crowds came. The people who were the regulars in the temple recognized this regular who'd always not been able to walk, who was a beggar in the temple. And they said, what? He... That's the guy, and yet he's walking. What is going on? And so this crowd came, and Peter has now learned, after a couple opportunities here, when a crowd forms, start preaching. And so Peter just, well, let me tell you what happened here, folks. This man was healed in the name of Jesus. And he begins to tell the crowds that they need Jesus. And he begins to explain who Jesus is. Well, the miracle forms a mob, and then the mob draws the cops. And that's where our story starts, chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they're speaking with the people. So you can probably figure out who the priests are. They're the the priests. The captain of the temple guard, there was a a temple police force. And then there were the Sadducees. Who were the Sadducees? Well, they were, um, you might call them the aristocrats, the aristocrats aristocrats who who ruled Jerusalem. They, They were a small group of people, many of whom were interrelated through marriage, and they were very wealthy, and they, they ruled the temple, and they ruled over Jerusalem, and they were the ones who really had formed a kind of buddy-buddy, crony relationship with the Roman Empire, so the people didn't like them a whole lot because they, they kind of sold their souls to the devil from the Jewish perspective. They'd become friends with the Romans in order to consolidate and control uh, Jerusalem and their power. So this was the, the wealthy elite, and, and they had changed their theology, and they, they kind of were were uh, not really faithful Jews in their belief system. For instance, they didn't believe that there was going to be a resurrection someday. 
So verse two, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't want that. They didn't believe in it and they didn't want people disturbing their power base. Don't, you know, this is the key for getting along with Rome. Don't cause waves. Just pay your money, pay your taxes. Rome's happy, you're happy. You control your little pond, they control the empire. Don't make waves. And now there are these waves. So they seize Peter and John. They throw them in prison till the next day. Verse 5, the next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, the other men in the high priest's family. This is a gathering of a group called the Sanhedrin. Uh, The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men plus the high priest who were essentially the the ruling body of the Jews in Jerusalem. They, they were kind of the, the high supreme court, the high legislative group, the, the ruling cabal of Jerusalem and of Judaism. And so here now, Peter and John find themselves standing before the highest rulers within the Jewish uh, community that there were before the Sanhedrin. And they ask him, verse 7, by what power or what name did you do this? How did you do this? And, you know, underneath that question is like, and who said you can do this in our temple? We're in charge here. There's a power struggle going on. And so then I love it, verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Isn't that great? He's filled with the Spirit. And we see in the book of Acts, when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, they often begin to speak. And, and, you know, Jesus promised us this, didn't he? He said, when you go stand before the judges and the rulers and when you're on the hot seat for your faith, he goes, don't worry about it. Don't sit around thinking about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit's going to give you words. So if you ever find yourself in, in an antagonistic situation on the hot seat, don't sweat it. Just let the Holy Spirit do the work. And he's filled with the Spirit. And, and it, it happens. And he begins to speak. And he says in verse 9, ruler, rulers and elders of the people, verse 9, if we're being called in account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and asked how he's healed. Is that, if that's what really this is about, is you guys are really curious of how we healed this guy, I mean, if that's really the issue, well, uh, okay, I'll tell you, know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's no secret, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's who. It's the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. So Peter goes on the offensive, whom you crucified. Why does he say, whom you crucified? Well, because this Sanhedrin is literally the group of people who just a few months earlier had sent Jesus to be crucified. Peter's literally talking to the same faces that Jesus had stood before a few months prior. You know, Annas was the high priest. Caiaphas was there. And this, this group is there again. And he's like, hey, you guys. Jesus did this. Remember him? You all conspired to hand him over to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles crucified him. You were a part of that. And then he brings in Scripture, verse 11. The stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. This is, again, a pattern we're seeing in Peter's preaching. He'll he'll talk about Jesus, and then he'll go to Old Testament texts to show that Jesus' life and death and resurrection were all foreshadowed and predicted in the Old Testament. But now he this one's a little bit of a zinger. This is from Psalm 118. The stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. Uh, It's it's this image of like there's a builder. You know, imagine some builders and they're like, all right, well, we got this stone, this big stone block. What are we going to use this for? I don't know. 
yeah, we don't need it. Just get rid of the dumb thing. And then someone else comes along and says, this is the perfect brick. This will be the cornerstone. This is probably a better translation than capstone. This will be the cornerstone of the new thing I'm going to build. And so they take it and they go build with it. That's the imagery behind this. So, so you can see the parallel, right? The Sanhedrin are the builders who reject the stone. Jesus is the stone. You rejected Jesus. You threw him away. He said, ah, worthless. But God said, no, 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 not worthless. And God raised him from the dead, and God placed him at the cornerstone upon which God is building his new temple and his new people and his new priesthood. Jesus and, and his apostles in the church God is building this new thing. What you guys rejected, God made the key foundational stone of his whole project. So, hate to break it to you. You guys are at 180 degrees on the opposite of God. It reminds me of the, uh, the proverb we have in English, which is uh, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And they, Jesus was trash to them, but he was heaven's treasure. And he's become the cornerstone, the capstone. And then that leads Peter to this great moment, this great rhetorical flourish in verse 12. Peter's good at one-liners. He's just good at these like big, summary, concluding one-line statements. I struggle with conclusions to sermon. I wish I could hang out with Peter, figure out how to do this well. Look at this conclusion. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's glorious. It's like fireworks going off. It's this huge, concluding, dramatic crescendo to his, his defense. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name given to men by which we must be saved. Well, so there it is. There's this, this thorny issue about this exclusive claim that there's only one way of salvation. Now, we should probably define salvation real quick. What, what do we mean by salvation? You know, that's a, kind of a churchy word. Salvation, salvation from what? Well, go back to chapter 3. Look at verse 19. We have a nice little description of salvation there in verses 19, 20, and 21. This is when Peter, the day before, was preaching to the mob that formed because of the miracle. And he said to them, repent and turn to God. And then what will happen? Here's salvation. Number one, that your sins may be wiped out. All your sins forgiven before God. Number two, times of refreshing may come from the Lord. God will begin to change your life and refresh you. Just as Jesus was crucified to forgive our sins, so Jesus was also raised to give us a new life, and we begin to be refreshed by the resurrected Christ. And then number three, Jesus is coming back, verse 20, that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you, uh, the Christ, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. So there's coming a final judgment day. And, and if you have Jesus, you're not only saved from your sins, you're not only saved by Jesus changing your life now, but, but you can have eternal life on the last day. So, so this is salvation in kind of the biggest sense that you can ever conceptualize salvation. I mean, what's left out of that equation? Forgiveness, a new life now, eternal life and the restoration of all things, even our bodies, everything restored someday. It's, it's as big as salvation gets. And Peter says, this salvation is found in no one else, verse 12, back in chapter 4. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What a remarkable statement. It's remarkable because of its specificity. 
It's very specifically focused on the name of Jesus. This is not the, the spirituality of, as you understand spirituality. This is a name. There's no other name. And that's been a focus so far in the book of Acts. It's been coming up again, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus. Check this out. Go back to chapter 2. You've got to see this. Verse 21. This is where it started. It starts here, and then it just continues like a drumbeat. Chapter 2, verse 21. This is the first time Peter had a, a mob and he preached a sermon. And he quotes from Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone can be saved. Anyone can be forgiven and have God work in their life and have eternal life. You just have to call on the name of the Lord. And it raises the question, what's the name of the Lord? Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. That's who. And then it continues on. Um, Verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life. Verse 36, therefore let all Israel be sure God has made this Jesus, the name of Jesus. Then, of course, in chapter 3, there's the healing. Chapter 3, verse 6, silver or gold I do not have, but what I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Or look at verse 16 of chapter 3. By faith in the Name of Jesus, this man whom you see was made strong. It is Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. And then the rulers ask in chapter 4, by what name? And so Peter says, you want to know the name? I'll tell you the name. It's Jesus. And then in verse 12, there's no other name. And then in verse 17, they told them, They must no longer speak in this name. So verse 18, they called him again and commanded them not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Do you hear that? The name of Jesus, the name of Jesus. That's the issue. It's very specific. And it's not even just kind of Jesus as you or I may understand him. It's this Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus who was crucified, the Jesus who was raised, the Jesus of the New Testament. This specific Jesus is the name. And not only is it a specific claim in verse, going back to chapter 4, verse 12, the troubling text. But it's a very exclusive claim. You know, it says in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. The Greek is, is a, actually a double negative. In Greek, it's salvation is not found in no one. We don't use double negatives in English, but in Greek, it's cool to use double negatives. It's just as like a, a really emphatic negative. It's like, you know, bold, underline, 20-point font, there's, no, there's not salvation found in no one. There isn't any other salvation. Or look at the, the next sentence. For there is no other name under heaven given to men. You know, where is under heaven? That's kind of like everywhere. It's a way of expressing the whole world. And there's no other name given to men. In other words, like mankind, humanity. So all of humanity under heaven has one way to be forgiven and to to have the Holy Spirit and to have eternal life, and it's through the specific name of Jesus. But it's an incredibly uh, powerful and gutsy statement. It, it's bold. And then to think that here are these guys saying this to the Sanhedrin, <laughs> you know? All the big names are there. Caiaphas, Annas, John, Alexander. He's like, eh, those names don't matter. It's only one name. Jesus. And he's telling these guys, you know, it's like, listen, you guys being the priests, 
that's not going to save you. You need Jesus. And you guys doing your temple rituals every day, not going to save you. You need Jesus. That's what the temple and the sacrifices were pointing toward, is Jesus. And in all of your attempts to, to obey the Torah, the Torah is good, but you can't keep it. You need Jesus. In all of your religiosity, and all of your, your influence, and everything you think you have going for you, there's only one name. It's Jesus. It's a very gutsy statement. And the, the guys recognize it. Look at verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. How did they do this? I mean, usually working stiff people don't stand in front of, you know, the, the academic elites and tell them off. It just doesn't happen. Working stiff people know better than that. Like, they just do their thing, you know, leave me alone, just give me my paycheck. And here are these guys. They're just working stiff guys. They're fishermen. They, haven't, they don't have a PhD, and they're standing in front of the, the scribes, the academic religious elites, and the, the power brokers in Jerusalem who could do all kinds of things to them. And they're boldly saying to them, you guys need to come to the name of Jesus and be saved. Who are these guys? Oh, they were with Jesus. Hmm. So it, here's the dilemma. Well, you know, what, what do we do? What do we do with this, this gutsy, bold statement? How, how do we do this? I'm sure this would, offended, this would have really offended the Sanhedrin. Well, it does offend them. Things get worse for them later on in the book of Acts for the Christians. The Sanhedrin's not happy about this, and people today aren't happy about this. This, again, going back to that original conversation, this just sticks sideways in people's throats. Like, what, why do you believe this? It's the only way. It seems so arrogant. And so maybe the Sanhedrin, you know, what should they do? Maybe just dismiss these guys, maybe throw them in jail, maybe ban them from the temple for life. I mean, I don't know. They, they've got to do something. You know, maybe they just ignore them and say, ah, these guys are crazy, whatever. Keep going. But there's one problem. The Sanhedrin has a problem. There's one little hiccup. There's one little glitch. What is it? There's a man standing there who's never been able to stand before. Verse 14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. That's the problem. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together, what are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle, and we can't deny it. That, that was the problem, is that, that Jesus changed this man's life. It was a fact. And as our forefather, John Adams, so famously said, facts are stubborn things. It's a fact. What, there's this guy we can't explain him. Jesus has changed his life. It's, so the question we should really be asking when we come to verse 12 and we get all hung up on it, the question to ask about salvation is found in no one else. The, the right question is, is it true? Is it true? That's not the question we tend to ask. The question we tend to ask is, how could anyone say something that arrogant? How, how could people believe it's the only true way? Wrong question. That's a second-order question. The first-order question is, is it true? Because if it's true, well, then it's true. 
And if it's not true, well, then, you know, kick him out or ignore it or whatever. Then you could say, well, how could you be so arrogant? But the first order question is, is it true? You know, we get hung up on this idea of exclusive truth claims. But here's the reality. Every time you open your mouth and you say this is how something is, you have made an exclusive truth claim. You cannot avoid or escape the problem of exclusive truth claims. So my buddy at the swim meet, he says, you know, religion... They all think they're right. And isn't religion really supposed to make us feel better about ourselves and help us be better people? I'm trying to remember exactly what he said. It was, it was, that was it. You know, to, to feel better about ourselves and be better people. But don't you see, in making that statement, he has made a religious claim. He has uttered a doctrine. And that doctrine is excluding everyone who disagrees with that doctrine. He, he, is, he is saying that people who don't think that are wrong. He's excluded pretty much every other religion in the world. And he's created his own religious statement and doctrine. Or, or have you ever heard people say, um, you know, it's arrogant to, to think that you have the right way to God and to go try to convince other people that your way is right. That's arrogant to do. Okay, but in saying that to me, you're arrogantly putting forth a doctrine and you're arrogantly trying to convince me that your view is right. You just can't escape exclusivity. It just always happens. Well, you know, maybe, maybe all the different religions of the world just have a part of the truth. You know, and, and this one has a part and that one has a part, but you put it all together and that's, then you get the whole and it all fits together. Okay, how do you know that? For you to know that's the case means you would have to know what the whole is or that there is a whole. Otherwise, how would you know that my part is just a part? So you're claiming a a comprehensive religious knowledge. You're being an exclusivist who's telling me that my beliefs are wrong because you have the whole truth. You can't escape it. Or or just one more. How about this one? Um, Look, the only reason you're a Christian is because you grew up in a Christian family. If you grew up in a Muslim family, you'd be Muslim. If you grew up in a Hindu family, you'd be Hindu. You know, we're all just just shaped by our culture. Our culture is what produces us. And so, so we all are culturally bound and culturally uh, localized, and that's why we believe and do what we do. It's like, okay, if that's true, where did you get that idea? From your postmodern 21st century relativistic culture? Why do you think that? You know? It could be that you think that because you've been raised in a particular culture. So, so even that idea gets culturalized and relativized. And so relativism always relativizes itself. And attempts to get rid of exclusivity are always self-refuting. You can't, it's just the nature of truth. If there's, you know, the only thing you can do and be consistent if you don't want to make any exclusive truth claims is just keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. And then you'll be consistent. Just stop talking and go, hmm, you know. But anytime we say something. So that's why I say the real question isn't how could people believe this? The question is what's true? And there before the Sanhedrin was a fact. There was a man standing who couldn't stand, for as it says in verse 22, over 40 years. But it wasn't just him who was standing in front of them. There was another fact. There were two working stiffs who now had the courage to challenge the Supreme Court of Judaism. All right, how did they do that? Well, they were with Jesus. Then there was another fact. There were... There were thousands of Jewish people believing this. Verse 4. I skipped over verse 4. Let's go back to it. 
But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So there were 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. Now, verse 4, it's, it's tough to translate. It, it's either, it, it either means that the number of, of Christians among the Jewish people grew to 5,000, or you could also translate verse 4 as 5,000 more were added. So it's possible that something has just happened bigger than Pentecost, so that now the church gone from like 3,000 to 8,000. You know, or more. That's another way to to translate that verse. So it's tough to know. But either way, there was a ridiculous growth spurt again for the church because of this incident and because of that preaching. And so, so what what is what are the Sanhedrin going to do with that? What are they going to do with the fact that there's now, you know, five to eight thousand monotheistic Jews worshiping a man named Jesus? How did they get there? That is so far out of their worldview, and so far out of what they were raised culturally to believe. It doesn't fit within Judaism. And suddenly these devout Jews who are going to the temple, they're good, faithful Jews, are believing that they need Jesus and that the temple and trying to keep the Torah imperfectly is not enough, that they need Christ. Those are facts. And I have to say that I believe this morning with all my heart that salvation is found in no one else, that there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. I believe that. You say, why do you believe that? Well, a lot of reasons. I could go on. But let me just focus on the one here. I believe it because I too look out at this church and I see so many people whose lives have been changed by the name of Jesus. And that just, you know, I have other reasons, but that's a big one that just keeps me stoked up. You know, that's one of the cool things about being a pastor. There's some perks. You only have to work one day a week, that's great. Another perk is, is you get to see kind of close up all, different, all these different lives, you know. It's, it's like, kind of like being a doctor. You go to the doctor and you kind of like, you know, you kind of let it all out. And you're like, oh, this is what's really going on, doc. And the doc gets to know about your personal life. And, and I, you know, that's how it is as a pastor. People go up to you and say, can I just ask you to pray for this, just confidentially. I'm like, okay. So you, so you have all this kind of confidential data. But the cool side of that is I, I see Jesus working in lives, Again and again, and I see it week after week, and I see it month after month, and I see it year after year. It's so cool. I see people converted from, from not believing in Christ to believing in Christ and loving Jesus, and people saved out of addictions and saved out of self-destructive behaviors and saved out of, uh, out of pain and brokenness, and I see them transformed, and their sins are forgiven, and they, sin, they feel forgiven, and their lives are transforming, and I'm just like, you know, got my bowl of pop, pastoral popcorn. I'm like, wow, this is great. Look at this. Look what Jesus is doing. I, I, people, I see people in this church pray in the name of Jesus, and their prayers get answered. It's really amazing. Last night, one of our missionaries uh, spoke. His name is Ralph Thompson, and he uh, is ministering a, Mus- a Muslim people in Mombasa, Kenya. And Ralph says one of the, the big evangelistic things they use with Muslims is they just pray for things in the name of Jesus. And then prayers get answered, and the Muslims go, huh, I pray in the name of Jesus, and it gets answered. Huh. And they, they just, and over time, they, they have to wrestle with the reality that Christ is alive, and he hears and answers prayer. I see people healed in the name of Jesus. People still pray for healing, and God sometimes heals. You know, I'd love to, after one service here, have all of the skeptics in the room come like over to the right side of the platform 
and then say, okay, anyone here who's ever experienced a healing touch by the power of Jesus come over on this side of the platform, and at the end of the service, I'm going to go home and you guys just hang out and talk. You know, you need to meet each other. You need to hear each other's stories and talk to each other about what Christ has done in your life. For those of you who have experienced some kind of dramatic healing, it doesn't always happen when we pray, but sometimes it does, and it's amazing when God does that. You know, I, I see people, I see you people, I've watched you for 20 years now, and, and this is the consistent pattern that real Christians who really know Jesus, they just get hit with stuff. You know, by the way, being a Christian is not going to protect you from the, the vicissitudes of life. Don't fall for that line. You're going you're, you're gonna to ha- get hit with life just like anyone else is a Christian. You're going to get diseases. You're going to have people you love suddenly die. You're going to lose jobs. Sometimes you're going to have a spouse who doesn't get it, and it's going to be a painful marriage. Christians go through all kinds of trials just like everyone else. But what I see is, compared to what I see in the world, is I see a group of people who are just filled with joy as they go through the trial. They, they have peace and joy, and they just keep soldiering on, and they come through the other side. And then you ask them, you're like, how did you get through that? And they always give you the same answer. Jesus. You know, how many times have I, how many times, if I had a dollar for every time I heard this one, I don't know how I would have got through that without the Lord. I don't know how anyone does it without the Lord. I just hear that over and over, and I'm like, okay. People are having some kind of real experience of the risen Jesus carrying them through, and at one point it was so dark they thought they lost their way and they didn't have any more faith, and yet somehow the hand of God reached down and pulled them out, and now they've come through the other side, and they testify to the power of Christ. I believe in Jesus because I watch Christians die. Christians die really, really well. You know, they just die good. They're they're like, yeah, this this stinks, but I'm at peace and I'm excited to see Jesus. They say that like what? You know, and and uh, boy, it has been a tough few years, but I'm really thankful for this cancer. Because it did this, this, and this, and God used it. What? You know, what are you talking about? That's what Christ does. And so I look before me, and I, and I see this. And it's one of the evidences, not the only one, that causes me to think, I just don't see this anywhere else in the world. That the power of Christ is still changing lives. The crippled man still stands before us. And another sort of example of Jesus changing lives is I just look in the mirror and I look at my own life. And I see that Christ has changed me and he's saved me. He's forgiven me. I don't know, when when you read this story, who do you identify with? I can identify with Peter. I'm like, well, he's a preacher. I'm a preacher. And I can identify with the people who got saved. You know, yeah, I've been saved. You know who else I I can identify with this in the story? The Sanhedrin. I can identify with those guys. These guys are, are just wild. You know, verse 17 but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people. What? Oh, heaven forbid more people would get healed. Yeah, we've got to put a stop to this. This is bad. To stop this thing from spreading any further, we must warn them no longer to speak in this name. Why is the Sanhedrin clamping down on this? They shouldn't be holding a trial today. They should be holding a Thanksgiving service. Special Thanksgiving service in the temple. Guy got healed. Let's all praise God. Instead, they're like, trial. What? What? 
Why are they acting like that? I know why they're acting like that. Because they want to control their little kingdom. And I look at that and I'm like, wow, I do that. You know, the, 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 one of the reasons people don't like this idea about Jesus being the only Savior is because all of us are little one man or one woman Sanhedrins. And we want to control our little world. And we want things to go a certain way. And we want people to look at us a certain way and give us a certain kind of respect. And, and we want a certain level of pleasure and comfort. And if we don't get it, then we're mad at God and we're mad at the world because we're a little Sanhedrin. And we've made our little deal with the devil, with Rome, and, and we're happy. Don't mess with it. Don't rock my life. I don't ask him for a lot, but I'm asking for this. And if God, you don't give me that, well, who, who are you? And I see that sin in my own heart. And I know that Jesus has died for that sin and he's risen again. And, and I, I feel the power of the Holy Spirit putting the Sanhedrin to death in my heart. It's like, Jesus, keep assassinating the Sanhedrin, please. I need them dead inside of me. And he's changing me. It's, it's a process. There's still a ways to go. But he's changing my heart. It, it's amazing. And then I think, well, I think I wiped them all out. Then there's another one, and then we've got to get rid of him too. And I thought I killed one and just wounded him. He comes back. So I've got to keep fighting. But it's there, and I see the power of Jesus. How about you? What do you do with Jesus? Is he your trash or your treasure? Is he the king or are you the king? Are you like the Sanhedrin that balks or are you like the crowds that believe? But it's not just that Jesus is our Savior, but he's also the reason we preach. And look just how this passage ends. Verse 18, they called him in again, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Stop it. Verse 19, but Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. Verse 20, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Don't you see? This whole idea of Jesus being the Savior isn't, shouldn't be an embarrassment to us. It should be the thing that propels us. You know, I can't help speaking about Jesus because of what I've seen and heard in the Scriptures, what I've seen and heard in you, what I've seen and heard in my own life. So I've, I've got to talk about it. I've got to tell people about it. So, so we look at verse 12 and we say, boy, that's a big problem for evangelism. That's a big problem for reaching people. Didn't, Peter didn't think so. He's like, no, this is my big conclusion. This is the big finale. Ba, ba, ba. And listen, it wasn't any easier for Peter to say that then than it is for us today. You think like, well, our culture's different. Well, yeah, but it's still hard. I mean, look, you, you and I may have people wrinkle their nose at us if we say that, but Peter was, had risk of being beaten. So it's not like he had, a, had an easy culture in which to do this. It's never easy to tell people that Jesus is the Savior. In any culture, it always goes down sideways because we don't like our little Sanhedrin overthrown. And so Jesus, in his exclusivity, it should be what propels us to preach the gospel. Rather than being, oh, this is a problem we've got to kind of deal with so we can tell people about Jesus. No, no, this is what we're telling people. This is why we're doing it. Look, if it's not true, if Jesus isn't the Savior then why do any of this stuff? There really isn't a reason, is there? You know? I mean, why would you go to school and risk other kids thinking you're weird 
and ostracizing you and losing the few friends you have because you're talking about the name of Jesus? Why would you do that? Why would you go to work and talk about Jesus to your coworkers at the risk of creating weird waves and gossip about you at work? Why would you do it? There's only one good reason to do it. Because it's true. If it's true, then it's true. And we can't help but speaking of what we've seen and heard. Why would you go on a, mission, on a short-term mission trip? You know, some people here in our church go on short-term mission trips. Why would you do that? You got to spend vacation time? Whew, my vacation time is precious. I wouldn't want to spend it on a mission trip. And you got to spend money to go. And then you go there and there's like diseases and dangers and problems on mission trips. And you're just going for a week or so. Why, why are you wasting your time and money and risking yourselves on a short-term mission trip? Because... Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name in heaven given to men by which you must be saved. And what about these full-time missionaries? Those people are out of their minds. Why are they throwing their lives away? You want to go where? But you, you could have done this here. You were in law school. You could have gone to medical school. Are you, why would, you were going there to do what? Well, hopefully you're doing something helpful, like being a doctor over there. No, you're not. You're just going to tell people about Jesus? What's wrong with you? You're throwing your life away. It is throwing your life away. Unless salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, in which case you're bringing the cure for the greatest problem in the world because you love people. So rather than verse 12 being a liability for missions and evangelism, the reality is it is the lifeblood of missions and evangelism. And the second we stop believing in Christ, it's like mission slitting its wrists and the blood drains out and there's no life left because why go do anything? The reality is there are many, many bridges to God, many ways to God besides Jesus. There are many bridges to God. But the problem is, none of the other bridges can support the weight of my sin. There are many bridges, but they all collapse under my sin. All these other religions say, do, do this, do that. Do the five pillars of Islam, do the eightfold path of Buddhism, worship the million gods of Hinduism, do the seven sacraments, do, you know, it's all these, you've got to do all these things. And Jesus is the only one who says, I've already done it. I died and I rose. I can bear you across. Or as Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you for saving us. We praise you for your work in our lives. It's amazing what you're doing. We have so far to go, and yet we know that you're carrying us along. Oh, Lord Jesus, keep exercising your power in us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the times of refreshing. Thank you for the hope of eternal life. And Lord, we just pray that we would, we would be so enamored with you, Jesus. We would be so swept up in you that we would have no choice but to talk about what we have seen and heard and experienced ourselves. Oh, Lord, we pray that, that we would trumpet 
and tell people about you, Lord, and that that the power of your name, we would trust in the power of your name, not in our arguments or our ability to persuade people, but help us to trust in the power of your name, Jesus, to win hearts and minds. Lord, anyone believing in you takes as much of a miracle as making a lame man walk. So Jesus, would you exert your power in our hearts? Would you raise us up? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Oh Lord, make us bold as a church. Make us gutsy and daring. Take all the working stiffs here and make them evangelists, Lord. Help us to speak out and speak up, we pray. And help us to do it out of love and out of a deep conviction, Jesus, that you alone are the bridge that can bear the weight of our sin. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.